I've been doing some reading lately, and the thought of Hercules has come up in my reading. Hercules, you probably are most, most of us all are familiar with him. He's that really strong guy a long time ago in myths who did a lot of neat stuff. There's 12 tasks he accomplished. Uh, actually, he was assigned 10 of them. And then when he'd finished the 10, they said, well, you cheated. And so they gave him two penalty tasks. <clears throat> but Hercules comes out of this mythological period of time, this Greco-Roman time where uh, people in some ways, not completely, but in some ways, tried to understand the divine world through myth. Now, I don't think they believed these myths any more than we did necessarily. I do think they were spiritual. I think they believed in gods. But I think their Hercules is like our Santa Claus. Uh, and I, and the reason, one of the reasons I think this is because alongside of mythology has always been philosophy. That when you look at the most mythological communities like Greece and Athens at the time, they still had the forum where they were talking about the major philosophies. And so you can tell that the human mind in that culture was not satisfied with mythology. But nonetheless... Uh, Hercules and, and people like Hercules kind of rise out of mythology. And, and while I don't think people believe them, I do think it's expressing something about what they do believe. In other words, I think there is a theology in their mythology. And this is what I think it is. Stories like Hercules, which is certainly not unique in mythology, they express a, an attitude that the gods are distant and they're capricious, and you want to avoid getting them mad. You want to make sure you try to curry their favor. That there's a certain kind of twisted relationship between the gods and man. I mean, certainly that's, that's how Hercules gets wrapped up in all of this, is Hera doesn't, want, doesn't like Hercules. She tricks Hercules. Now, that idea, this idea that the gods are distant and that we need to curry favor with the gods so that we don't incur the wrath of the gods or try to store our points, that is every bit as present in today's culture as it was during the times of Greece and Rome. We are every bit as mythological in that sense as they were. We just don't tell very good stories anymore. At least they made it look good. But we say stuff like, I think I did enough good stuff. What does that mean? Well, you did enough good stuff to avoid the wrath of God or, or to, to warrant the favor of God. I didn't do anything really bad. Or, there's this idea in the back of our minds that we somehow want to make it through life without crossing the gods. And as long as we can do that, then we won't go to Hades. <clears throat> well, I mention this because I want us to appreciate that this is the world that Abram is coming out of. Now, he predates Greco-Roman mythology. He's some time before it, but this is certainly the kind of world in which he's living. Abram is living in a world of gods and goddesses all over the place, and the religion at the time was sacrifice to survive. You want good crops? What do you do? You sacrifice. You want the famine to end? What do you do? You sacrifice. You want a son? What do you do? You sacrifice. They were so serious about it, if you really wanted something, you sacrificed a son. All through this time, this rite of sacrificing and of bringing offerings to the gods was an act of trying to curry their favor and avoid their wrath. 
That's how it's done. And this leads to this kind of endless path of sacrifice because if you sacrifice to get good crops and you get good crops, now what do you do? You've got to sacrifice. You've got to let the God who gave it to you know you're thankful. And so now you've got to really sacrifice. And this is how those kind of mythological allegiances happen. Towns that worship their town God. Why? Because they're so indebted to him for the things he's done. This is the world that Abram's coming out of. This is a world where people are religious, but they're not in relationship with God. There's a God, and all they want to do is avoid his wrath or gain his favor. Which to me seems like a Herculean task. That task seems doomed from the beginning. If that is the God, then we are all to be pitied. But it's not. And as Abram is taken out of his land, I want to observe this morning, I want to take time to kind of step back towards Genesis 12 and and move into Genesis 15 and observe how the God of the universe tries to mature Abram's idea of relationship with God. That's That's what we're going to spend time on. And this is a major theme, by the way, in the whole life of Abram. If you just step back and try to observe how God takes a man who has no relationship with God, which was us at one point, right? Every one of us here. Was at some point when we were outside of relationship of God, read the story with an eye for how God closes the distance between this man and himself. So this morning we're going to kind of observe the first major movement of that happening. You can turn to Genesis 14, if you would. We'll read a little bit there before we go to 15, but I want to back up your minds to 12 and 13 to kind of bring to attention the first way that God enters into relationship with Abram. If you read 12 and 13, or if you reread it, or if you take note of it, you will notice that the way that God and man relate to one another is dominated by this phrase, and God said. And God said. God speaks into the life of Abram. Now, when we hear that, because Abram's a really old guy, and he's in the Bible, I think we like to assume there's a pillar of fire there, or that the sky breaks open and you hear this, and God said. But I don't think that happened. I think we want to act like, well, Abram obeyed God because God told him. I mean, he heard the voice of God. But let me ask you this. When you hear a powerful testimony of someone shares to you, right? And have you ever gone up to them and said, God really spoke to me in what you said. Have you at least heard that? What are we saying there? We're saying, and God said. Or if you've ever heard a powerful, um, some powerful praise and worship music or a powerful message or something, you and I have been in places and times in our life where we have felt God speak. Does the sky open up? Does a light appear? Is there a pillar of fire? Is there an altar? Do the angels and spinning wheels and things with wings and eyeballs show up? No. But nonetheless, we feel God speak to us. You can't deny it. It's in the back of your head. We've all had those back-minded appearances where God has spoken, where we feel convicted. And in this kind of relationship, this is a real and legitimate relationship. And this is how God is showing up for Abraham in Genesis 12 and 13. I think he's showing up in the back-minded ways. I think he's showing up and speaking to him in ways that are not audibly audible, but are spiritually audible. In ways that land on him and convict him, just like they do with us. Have you not done something because you have felt the conviction of the Lord? And God said. 
God's spoken to your life. It lands on you with conviction. It pushes you to action. This is real, legitimate relationship. But it's different than what we think of as relationship because it's one way. That kind of conviction doesn't ask you for your opinion. It just lands on you. There's some of you here who have been in a place, or maybe you're in a place, maybe today's the day where God says, you need to become a Christian. He doesn't say, what do you think about it? Sometimes when God speaks, he just wants to land on you and be directive. And that's what we seem to see in Genesis 12 and 13, is that kind of God. It's relationship, but it's one-way relationship. There's still a distance between God and man. That still is familiar to somebody who's used to offering sacrifices to the sun god. Is this idea that God would speak somewhere in their personhood, Someone, that God would convict them to do something. That's not alien. That's not excessively personal yet. So that's the first way that God begins to change Abram's idea of relationship. The fact that, that he would speak. Here's the second. If, if you're looking at Genesis 14, I'm going to summarize the front end of it, and, and so we'll spend a little time in the back. What happens in Genesis 14 Lot went his own way. Abram's living near the great trees of Mamre, which is, that's where I would live if we had some. If Hokesson had trees of Mamre, I would be in that neighborhood. But he's living near these great trees of Mamre. And what happens is there's this confederacy of kings in the east, way in the east, actually southeast of Ur, Elam. There's this king named Ketalomer. And he has this confederacy well, they exercise very loose control over the land of Canaan. So the land of Canaan, all the kingdoms in Canaan have been paying tribute to this great eastern kingdom. Well, there's a pretty big distance. There's about 15, 12 to 1,500 miles between the two. And you can imagine over the years, the kings in Canaan start to get tired of paying tribute to a, to a conqueror they never see. So the kings in the valley, like Sodom and Gomorrah and Zoar and these other kings, they decide one day we're no longer paying tribute to the eastern confederacy. We're done. We're tired of it. They don't even know we're here. But they do. So the kings of the east, they gather an army together. They rise up. They travel. And they ravage Canaan. They take Canaan captive. They defeat everyone in their path. The kings of the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah and their associated allies, they rise up and five of them go to battle against these four kings of the east and they get destroyed. And in the process, Lot gets taken captive with his family. Now somebody escapes and they run to Abram who's living in the great trees of Mamre. And they say, Abram, the kings of the valley have been destroyed and your nephew Lot has been taken captive. And what Abram does, he musters an army, 318 of his own fighting men. And because Abram's a good neighbor and because everybody wants to live in the great trees of Mamre, he has allies. And so he and his allies, they gather together and they go and they kick some eastern hiney. They travel all the way up. They don't simply defeat these kings. They ravage them. They take their spoils. They expel them out of the land of Canaan beyond the city of Damascus. And he comes home with everything together to include his nephew Lot. And when he comes home, he's met. He's met in the valley of the kings by a man named Melchizedek. So read with me in verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. 
He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, Creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hands. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. I think this represents a new step in the relationship between God and man, between Abram and God. So far, God has been speaking to Abram, has been speaking into his life. Now something new happens. God sends him an envoy. God sends a messenger on his behalf to Abram to say, I carry the words of God to you. Do you see this? God is still speaking. It still technically is God said. But it's God said through a priest. This priest, Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness, who's also the priest king of the city of Salem, which is the city of peace, otherwise translated as Jerusalem. This this king carries the message to Abram, who says, Blessed are you by the God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. This, to me, personalizes God in a way that the distant, back-minded voice can't do. We've all been in that place where we have felt the conviction of God in our hearts, but we also have been in that place where somebody speaks a word of God into us, and it feels so much closer, and it feels so much more intimate to have an ambassador of God come to us with his words. And I'm not talking just me. We are a kingdom of priests. This is a room of ambassadors charged with the mission of taking the God-said words to the world. Because we know that when God's words are wrapped up in a human being, they are just more receivable. We can see somebody and touch them. The words of God are just, we can hear them better, we can make sense of them better when they're carried to us by somebody. It's almost as if God wants to take his word and make it flesh and make it dwell among us. It seems like he's trying to do that. And he does it here. This personal yet distant God, I think, is brought this much closer by the fact that God has sent his ambassador to Abram to say, I come on behalf of the God Most High to encourage you and to bless you. And he does that for us too. We have each other. We have fellow Christians who are priests in our own life. When we are discouraged, when we don't hear God's voice, when we cannot hear the God said, guess what happens? Somebody else shows up and says, God said. Someone will say to you, you know, I have been thinking about you and I just feel like I need to tell you. And how often has that been exactly what you needed to hear? Some of you have never had that. I think it's because you may not be part of a covenant community. I think it's just a matter of time if you're, if you're in a committed covenant community before that happens before somebody really speaks into your life the words of God. Isaiah writes this. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. That's what God uses us for. God uses us to carry the good news to others, as he's done to Abram. And I think this heals or begins to close the distance, this Herculean distance between God and man, now there is a priest on behalf of God saying, God loves you and he blesses you. 
That's number two. Here's the third way. Open your Bibles to Genesis 15. Something new and radical happens here. Something that I don't think has happened since the days of Adam and their children. says this, I'll read verses 1 to 6. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars. If you can indeed count them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. The Bible says, After this comes a vision. God appears to Abram in a vision. So he's speaking, but he's speaking in a different way now. He's speaking through a vision. And whether it's two visions or a two-sided vision, I'm not exactly sure. But he comes to him in this vision. I've had a hard time figuring out what's actually the vision part. If you read it, it doesn't feel visiony. If I was going to write a vision, I would not write this vision. Because I can't even figure out what's happening. But well, what I want to do is try to grasp what, what the essence of what's really happening. What's the essence of this vision? And this is what I think it is. It feels or appears that God is with Abram. It feels as though God's with him. But it isn't just a distant voice saying, leave your country. It feels that God is actually in the room with Abram. At one point, at one point here, God says, come with me. He takes him outside and he says, look at the stars. You see that? So there's this feeling like God's actually there. God's present in the room. And because of that, something new and wonderful happens between God and man. And this is it. A conversation ensues. This hasn't happened since Genesis 4. That God and man begin to have a conversation. Abram actually talks back to the Lord. It isn't just this one-sided voice anymore. And some of you have a relationship with God. I'm not trying to deny the fact that you don't have a relationship with God because you hear His voice in your life, because you have His conviction. What I'm saying is is there is more than that. God God is not satisfied to leave Abram in chapter 12. In chapter 15, God wants to meet with Abram and be with Abram. This is prayer. I know that doesn't thrill you. I know you'd rather a vision, a big fancy vision. Well, you're not going to get one. Or at least you're not Abram. Maybe you'll get one, but you're not Abram. We should not expect to get all the stuff Abram got. Abram's singular. He's singular in Scripture. There's heroes of the Bible that want to be Abram. David probably wanted to be Abram. So we should not expect that we get everything exactly like Abraham does. But we can say this. That the very same God who meets with Abram in the same room 
is the same God who meets with us. God says he gives us his what? His Holy Spirit that comes and dwells inside of us, that groans on our behalf, that intercedes for us like a priest, that begs the Lord. And it is, in, it is through that Spirit that we are able to pray, our Father who art in heaven, or whatever it happens to be. We are given the right and privilege as sons of God to speak back to God. That is beautiful. The intimacy of what's happening here, this prayer. And I know this vision accentuates the moment, but the really radical element here is that we're allowed to speak back to God. You can tell Him what you think. You can praise Him and bless Him. You can call on Him. You can run to Him. You can even give Him your frustration. That's what Abram does here. The first time... God actually meets with Abram in a vision. Somehow they're in the same place. Somehow they're together. This almighty God, this God most high says, I am your shield, your very great reward. And what does Abram say? Abram says, God, I don't feel blessed. That's his first words to God. It's the first recorded words of Abram to God is, what can you give me? I don't have a son. I don't feel blessed. I don't see the blessing. God, I know you're there, sovereign Lord. I know you're in my life, but I don't feel the blessing that you're offering. Now that there, that alone, be careful, huh? That alone is not rebelliousness. He's not talking back to God. He's speaking to God in faith. He's addressing the Lord in faith. God doesn't come to us so that we just tell him what we think he wants to hear. We are allowed to express our true heart, our devout experiences before the Lord. Even if those experiences are, God, I don't see what you're saying. But Abram expresses it in a unique way. He expresses it in faith. Abram's comments and his questions are expressed in faith. That's what, that's what Genesis 15, 6 is, is trying to convey. The fact that Abram, even when he speaks to God, even when he speaks to God of troubling things, is speaking through faith. And because of that, it's righteous. You can say anything you want to God as long as it is in faith. That's why he came into our room. That's why he came to meet with us. That's why he has closed the distance between God and man. There's no longer this Herculean distance between us where we have to be scared that we might cross him. If we are in faith, we can say what we need to say. He knows what we're thinking anyway. Why are you hiding your prayer? God knows you're discontent. God knows when you don't feel blessed. And he's come so that we can speak to him and faith. Now this faith here, Genesis fifteen six, it says, Abram believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. This I do not think, I don't think it's right to see this as a punctiliar moment in Abram's life. I think it's wrong if we say this is the moment when Abram believed. I think rather that this punctiliar moment is typifying Abram's life. We need to remember Abram's having this conversation a thousand miles from home. So Abram has got up He's left his land, the land of his forefathers, his country. He's left everything behind. He's gone to war for the Lord. He's done these things. 
He's allowed, when he asks these questions, he's asking in faith. He's in the middle of the Christian life trying to figure the Christian life out. And we're called to do the same thing. And then God does this one last thing. As if that wasn't enough. As if it's not enough that God speaks to us. As if it's not enough that God sends an ambassador to us. As if it's not enough that God meets with us and dwells inside of us and asks us to respond. This is what he does. Verse 6. Abram believed and he credited to him his righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them into two, and arranged them in halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated four hundred years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Gershashites, and Jebusites. A covenant. It was not enough that God spoke to Abram. It's not enough that God sent an Abram an ambassador. It's not enough even that God met with Abram and spoke with Abram. There seems to be this point where God says, I've reached the threshold in this relationship that I need to, make a, I need to codify my promises to this man. That's what seems to be happening. That enough has been said now that I actually need to place it in ceremony. I need to place a stake in, Abram, in the ground of Abram's life to say, this moment I can trust in. That's what this, this covenant is about. Is, this isn't a covenant for God. God doesn't need this covenant. This is a covenant for Abram. This is an expression of God to Abram saying, I'm going to give you something that you can anchor your faith in. That all these things I've said, all these expressions of love and blessedness, I'm going to condense them into a moment. I'm going to place myself contractually in your debt. And he does that through a covenant. Now, there's a lot we don't know about covenants, but this is what we do know. What we can see here is there's sacrifice in a covenant. In fact, the Hebrew phrase to make a covenant is to cut a covenant. That's how you would say it. To cut a covenant. And so the tradition, it seems to be that what they would do is they would get some number of animals and they would cut the animals in half and set them apart. And the participants of the covenant would pass through the animals. They would walk through the animals. And in doing so, that would be some kind of divine expression of God observing this this moment 
What they're really doing, and, and this seems to be the case because this, this tradition is exercised in whole or in part by all the peoples around. This isn't new to Abram. In fact, he seems to know what they, to do. If you look at Genesis, God says, go get animals. And what does Abram do? He goes and gets them. He cuts them. He separates them. And he waits. It's like if God said to us, fine, let's draw up a contract. We'd go get the room. We'd get the paper. We'd get the fancy pen. And we'd call the lawyer. We know. That, that's what we do. Because we're going to make a covenant. So it seems that Abram knows. This is familiar ground for him. That this covenant's about to be cut. And in this, there's a sacrifice. The animals are set apart. And what seems to be the case is, is that this whole ceremony is trying to draw on the divine recognition of what's happening. It's trying to create a solemnity of the contract. That's what seems to be happening. And, and so in a way, people are swearing by the name of God as they do this. Or in this case, God is swearing by the name of God as he does this. And the participants, they pass through the covenant as they swear by the name of God. And the expression that seems to be, that seems most real, is that they're, with the sacrifices, they're saying that I, I will lay my life down to make this covenant happen. That these animals that have been separate, I, I will go to the point of death to make sure I fulfill this. In the sight of God and of man, I will go to the point of death to make sure this covenant is fulfilled and satisfied. That's what's going on here. And God is the only one who is in covenant. Does Abram pass through? Does Abram walk through this aisle of death, through these sacrifices? Does Abram have to say that he has some part in this covenant he has to fulfill? No, God says, watch. God himself passes through and says, I, in the name of Almighty God, will make this come to pass, even if it requires that I take myself to death. And Abram believes, and it is credited to him as righteousness. Now, I know God speaks to us like he speaks to Abram, and I know God sends us ambassadors like he sends to Abram, and I know God meets with us like he met with Abram. I wish we had a covenant. I wish we had a covenant like Abram. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took his body and he broke it. He set it aside. And he said, this is a covenant. I've broken my body. I'm swearing by my name that if you are not blessed, I will perish. That I will go to death to ensure that you receive the blessings I've promised you. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this blood is the new covenant I'm giving to you. That through the shedding of my blood, as I pass through death, through the shedding of my own blood, that God himself is observing God, saying that I will pass from life to death to ensure that the blessings I've promised will fall on my people. Do you believe this? God has given us a covenant. The covenant of Jesus Christ is one that is one and the same with Genesis 15. That's what the writer of Romans is saying. That we are, we are one into this covenant through faith like Abram because this is a blessing of God made in the name of God. It's owned by God. God is doing the work. God has torn himself apart. God has passed through his own death to bring us this promise of life. 
Even look at, look at the sacrifice. At the moment God, Jesus Christ was dying, he cries out, Why have you forsaken me? It's like he's being torn apart. And when he passes, what happens? All the earth gets dark. A great and dreadful darkness is cast as the covenant is executed. That is Genesis 15. Some of us are in the covenant. Some of us are outside of the covenant. Some of us are observing the covenant for the first time. I'm here to say that the blessings of the covenant of Jesus Christ come to us through faith and faith alone. It is Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. And it's given to us the same way. Amen.